Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Now, you may already have attended street parties. You may have seen the special night of programming on BBC4. But it is the eighth birthday special of this podcast. We're going eight years. Um, 2015. Very different place. Uh, Stuart Bingham was world champion. Jake Humphrey had yet to invent podcasts, but somehow the Snooker Scene podcast was launched on October the 5th, 2015. Let the record show that's when we began. And here we are, <laughs> all these years later, still sticking around. <laughs> and, uh, well, we've been through various iterations. The first episode, you can still listen to them all in, in, the, uh, in the archive, but the first episode was myself and Clive Everton uh, discussing the latest snooker news. We've had interviews with players and other people in the snooker world. We've had uh, snooker player Bingo. That was quite successful, I think. Uh, the A to Z of snooker. That went on a long time, as I recall. And all sorts of other things. Um, of course, Michael McMullen was on for a couple of years. And uh, it's been mainly me since. But uh, we, we carry on. We carry on. It's a crowded market these days. There's other podcasts. Some of them are quite good. Some less so. But we, <laughs> but we carry on, uh, uh, yes, into our ninth year. And uh, we do so um, following an extraordinary uh, week in Cheltenham, I thought. I thought it was a brilliant tournament, the British Open. And it ended, of course, with that dramatic final between Mark Williams and Mark Selby. Um, Mark Williams winning at the age of 48. The final, it was a long match that finished suddenly. Obviously, he stole the penultimate frame. But then to win the last frame, having needed a snooker. I'm not quite sure what Mark Selby was doing, rolling to those three reds on the cushion when Mark Williams needed a snooker. And, uh, of course... He did get it, and he did clear up, and uh, 10-7, second oldest winner of a ranking event. I'm as guilty as anybody about talking about age. I think it's been overdone, though, really. 48, he's not old. Obviously, in sporting terms, it is. And even for a snooker player, it was once, when players like Mark were in their 20s dominating, it was once regarded as really old. I mean, Steve Davis, he won the Masters for the third time in 1997. And it was sort of almost like Methuselah himself had won it, the way people talked. Oh, you know, this extraordinary win for this veteran. He was 39. <laughs> I mean, these days, that's young. Because um, the, the older players are really good. And also, there are fewer 
younger players coming through the grassroots. That's just a fact. And the two combined have meant that the longevity of these guys, and of course Ronnie O'Sullivan won in Shanghai, John Higgins still going strong. I mean, all the tournaments this season have basically been, been won by 40-something. Sean Murphy, Barry Hawkins won the others. Um, you know, it allows them to have this longevity, but maybe we need to retire the idea that they're going to retire um, because it's a new sort of phenomenon in snooker that the older players are doing well. And Mark Williams clearly can still play a very, very good game of snooker. He proved it all week and again in the final. Ranking title number 25. So he's just three behind Davis in fifth place. And Mark's in fifth place. Steve on 28 in fourth. Of course, Ronnie O'Sullivan, 39. Stephen Hendry, 36. John Higgins, 31. Is the upper order. As I say, it was a good week. I thought Cheltenham, and we'll come on to some correspondence about the, the event, but I thought Cheltenham was a, has become a good venue. Obviously, it's had the World Grand Prix before. It's a risk when you start moving tournaments around. Um, it's never a good idea, I don't think, but I, I do understand the British Open is likely to be at Cheltenham next year, so hopefully it'll keep that home, keep that slot, and build up. And the crowds are interesting. I mean, day one was really good. Tuesday and Wednesday tailed off a bit. Of course, day one, people knew who were playing. I mean, the, the FA Cup style draw, it was hard to follow exactly who was playing when. And obviously, you know, the, we'll come on to the scoring system in due course. But I mean, you're trying to find out on that. You might as well send a stamped addressed envelope, you know, for all the for all the use it is. Um, but the crowds were good uh, on, the, on the Monday. Tuesday, Wednesday, it tailed off. Then the rest of the week, it was really good. Although I have to say, strangely, Sunday afternoon, the first session of the final, it didn't seem as full as Saturday. You'd think the final would be sold out, and you'd understand it was, but maybe some people just couldn't make it for whatever reason. I mean, it wasn't the lineup. Selby Williams is a classic lineup. Um, anyway, the crowds were good overall, and I think, uh, you know, people have criticised Will Snooker Tour in the past for events that haven't been so good. I think they have to be uh, commended for their promotion of the event. It seemed a lot of work was done locally, um, and tickets reasonably priced, I think. And as I say, it's a nice venue. It's in the race course, the Centaur, it's called. A nice area if you're going to come for a few days. And I know some people did. You know, the, the worst places have been in Cheltenham, for sure. A nice part of the world to spend a few days. So that's all part of it as well. So I think the event was successful. The, the viewing figures were very good on ITV4 and ITV3 when it went on there, um, when there was other sport, rugby in particular. Uh, very strong figures, actually, on ITV3. So all all good, all positive, and uh, we've got some feedback which we will address right now. I wonder who's written into the podcast the most over the eight years. Well, Alpha Bonzi might be on that list, I think. And Alpha's come in, as usual, with his three quick questions. Number one, you'll never hear him say it, but Williams winning a major ranking title has to be his best achievement, aside from his 2002-03 triple crown. Um, well, that's a very different thing because that's winning three tournaments. I mean, I think the, the, the great achievement, certainly in recent years, Alpha, was him winning the World Championship again in 2018. I mean, 15 years after his second victory to win it the third time, the way he won it against John Higgins, you know, that, that is a standout moment. But um, to win this tournament, yeah, I mean, you know, the sort of signs have been there the last couple of years that his form was good, but it's all really well your form being good. Actually winning a tournament, you know, winning that final, that had eluded him actually Two years ago, he won his you know, most recent ranking title, the same tournament, the British Open. He had been close in big matches since. The Masters final last season was won. Um, so to nail this, he, he, you could see Mark, I mean, he's, he's you know, he, he plays everything down, but he didn't play that down. He was very, very happy, clearly. Um, and, of course, it opens the door. Champion of Champions, Players Series, all the rest. Top 16 place, you know, absolutely nailed on for the foreseeable future. So, um, you know, he certainly was very satisfied by it. 
Uh, question two, still no ITV title for Mark Selby, Snooker's strangest anomaly. Well, it was his first final in an individual event. He had been in the doubles with Rebecca Kenner last year. But, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no obvious... It's nothing to do with, you know, lack of motivation or anything. I think some of the earlier ITV events pre-pandemic, they often seem to be around the time there'd been a tournament in China, which he'd done well in. So maybe some of the travelling affected him. Uh, he'll win one eventually, probably this season. Uh, number three... How will the British Open affect the upcoming English Open, if at all? Well, I'm recording this alpha on day two, and so far uh, it doesn't hasn't had much impact, I don't think. I mean, that we had a thrilling evening on Monday. Luca Purcell and Stan Moody it was a fantastic match, which Moody could have won, actually, but uh, it was a great viewing. It's just on to the next one, isn't it? You know, it's another week, another venue, big crowd in Brentwood already, and... I guess the, the, the question is, how can the players who did well in, or will the players who did well in Cheltenham do well in Brentwood? Will it be players maybe who didn't perform there a bit fresher? We'll see. But um, no, it's just on to the uh, on to the next one. Now, Alpha says here, P.S. R.I.P. joke section. We hardly knew you. Well, we, we, that's not the case actually. We'll be back with another uh, listener round of jokes later. Most of them are rotten, but uh, <laughs> but that's kind of uh, of a piece with the whole thing. Callum Law, he says, I hope you're well. I've been dipping in and out of the snooker so far this season, but I really enjoyed the British Open, and it feels now like we're into the meat of the season, with the busy period ahead. Mark Williams really does continue to amaze. For me, some of the shots he plays and his whole approach to the game make him unique in snooker. There's nobody else quite like him. It was interesting during the presentation when he seemed quite close to tears, not a side of Mark the public usually sees, but clearly underneath his outward persona, it still means so much to him. It's always a joy to watch Mark play, and the British Open showed he's still going to be around at the top end of the game for a while yet. As for my dream tournament quarterfinal lineup, well, we'll come to that because I should have said at the start um, that that is the main uh, topic uh, this week. I asked, as it's uh, the eighth anniversary for um, people's uh, own sort of fantasy quarterfinals, and we will we'll be coming to that later. Now, that's some, uh, we always welcome feedback, um, quite an important part of the podcast, I think, from fans who've been to tournaments and spent their own money, they've been to these venues, and obviously they will have perspectives that people who haven't been, or indeed haven't paid the money to go, will not have. So, we start with Will Smith, uh, not that one, I'm assuming. He says, it starts by saying, I completely understand you're not an agony aunt. Well, who knows, Will? We may introduce that as a section, as a new feature at a, at a future date. But anyway, he says, I'm currently, so he actually emailed me from the, the, the venue. He said, I'm currently sat watching the British Open and contemplating if and when I'm going to have an epileptic seizure. Many people have complained with regards to the blinding lights, but the complaints have fallen on deaf ears. Uh, mixed metaphor there, but I, I know what you mean. He says, I've attached a picture for your reference. This is when it's blue. You can only imagine what it's like when it flashes red. When will World Snooker Tour start putting their in-arena spectators first? Well, he did. He has uh, attached a picture, which obviously, listening to this, you can't see. Yeah, there are all sorts of what seem to be, to the sort of naked eye, extraneous lights. Of course, they're all to produce the sort of the, the mix of colours to make it dynamic watching on television. But I understand from certain areas of the arena, these lights can be off-putting. And there have been times when players actually have complained. Um, so I, I, I'm sure that, um, you know, all feedback is welcome. It might be worth dropping a line to the promoters and just say, you know, this can be an issue at some tournaments. It's it's always a battle because obviously the broadcasters and 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 the, the sort of the the experts in this they have a very f- a fixed view on how they want it to look, but obviously the the spectators who paid their money are very important as well. 
Stephen from Carmarthen says, I thought I'd drop a quick message and say I went to the semi-final Saturday afternoon in Cheltenham and had two tickets for the upper area. The venue itself was fine, but the upper tier was dreadful. We had seats where the table was hard to see and there was a bar straight in front of us and it really obstructed the view. Now, when Stephen says a bar, he doesn't mean where you buy drinks. He, he literally means a steel bar. And I know exactly the, the place in the arena he means, yeah, there, there is a kind of, uh, there is a bar running across. So if you sat at the back, it will, will be in your way. He says, it's really not good for the paying customers. I think World Snooker should have put these tickets up as restrictive view. We did, however, move across as there were plenty of empty seats, but that bar was still there and really off-putting. That said, I enjoyed the match. Also, there were empty seats down below, but whilst purchasing purchasing tickets online, availability for that area didn't show. One of the points I found strange was that the snooker merchandise store didn't seem to be there. Well, thank you, Stephen. And as we know, you know, when it is there, it's not up to much, really, but um, it didn't seem to be uh, anything available to buy from what he's saying. And Mark and John, who I met in the car park... Um, they said it was a it was a chance meeting. Uh, they said uh, we thought we'd write to say what a lovely few days we had in Cheltenham at the British Open. What a lovely venue it was, uh, overlooking the racecourse. The seating was comfortable, the toilets were good, plenty of parking, and there was plenty of room inside the venue. We were surprised there wasn't any merchandise there. You see, again, that's the same thing. And uh, and there were more empty seats than we expected. But if Will Snooker could finally give the British Open a permanent home there and market it properly, I'm sure in future years it will be a sellout. Locals who enjoyed it could make it an annual day out if the continuity was there. This applies to many events, and we think Will Snooker would sell more tickets over a season if they focused on this rather than on moving the World Championship from the Crucible. As always, it was nice to bump into you in Cheltenham. We also saw Neil Folds and Adam McManus there and had a lovely chat. As snooker fans, those small interactions with people we admire so much adds hugely to our experience, and we are really grateful that you all take a few minutes to make our day. Well, not at all. That's quite... Uh, quite right that everybody does uh yeah i mean on the venues I, I, like i say i think that the crowds did did sort of drop off a little bit after day one but they definitely picked up later on in the week um it, it is a good venue and it would be nice now to think that you know it could be kept there because once you have a bit of history as we know from from venues past you can really identify the tournament with it the problem in recent years is tournaments have moved around like a carousel and no one really knows what's anywhere i think there is a concerted effort from what i understand from World Snooker Tour to establish really good venues in in big cities. Cheltenham is 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 uh, doesn't quite meet that 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 same sort of um, criteria, but it is a distinct place to have a tournament, certainly in, in the race course. Um, and you know, I think the next few years will be interesting in terms of where sort of the tournaments go. I don't think any tournament, and I mean any tournament, is guaranteed to stay where it is right now. I think. Uh, there's a real push to, to get bigger venues and try and sell more tickets and make it more accessible to more people. So, you know, we think of tournaments like the UK Championship and the Masters and, of course, the World Championship is being fixed. They're not necessarily. Um, it'd be interesting, I think, next couple of years. I'm going to make a prediction now that two years from now, at least one of those events will have moved venues. Now, it won't be the Crucible because the contract is up until 2027. So it may be one of the other two. Um, we'll see. I'll say I'd make a bet. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually wagering on it. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, finally on this, uh, in terms of going to the venues, in fact, that is the end of the, the uh, people who've been, but uh, we're still on the British Open. Phil says, uh, just a couple of points I've picked up during the ITV commentary of the British Open on Friday evening around the tables. Firstly, it was alluded that the pockets were playing tight compared to the World Championship, for example. Has any official word come out something has changed in the setup. It was also mentioned that the tables are new for this season. Are the tables changed from the qualifying tables to the number one match table and what happens to the old ones? Keep up the good work. 
Well, thank you for all sort of conspiracy theories went round the venue, um, as they do at most tournaments about various things. Rumours were started that the tables, the pockets had been um, tightened up. You know, there'd been uh, new tables had been manufactured. All this, t- the, the table fitters said it wasn't true. Um, it's the, they're the same tables, but clearly, you know, if you watched table one, as most TV viewers would have done, it did play tight. The the pocket, as you look on TV, bottom left of the screen, so top right, in sort of in old money. Um, that was very tight. That pocket, um, it just was. Now the pockets are not supposed to be easy. Um, but equally, you can't go too much the other way either. A lot of big breaks were made. A lot of great snook was played. Um, Stephen Hendry, I think, put it best. He said the middle of the pocket has always been the middle of the pocket. That hasn't moved. But some balls that we've seen going in in other tournaments didn't. It's down to various factors, I think. But there hasn't been a, a sort of conspiracy <laughs> to tighten the pockets. I think if you can get a balance. I mean, the Crucible, they did play big. There's no question about that. Here they played tight. So somewhere in the middle of that, I think you've got the ideal pocket. But, um, but yeah, we saw a lot of balls miss, but we also, of course, saw plenty potted. Uh, Craig says, uh, I just wanted to send you a few lines to say how much I was in- I'm was i enjoying the start to the new season and how delighted I was to see my favourite player, Mark Williams, lifting silverware last night. His victory was fully earned. He matched Selby all the way in all areas of the game and rightfully got his hands on the trophy at the end of the night. It's nothing less than he deserves after a number of near misses in the past couple of years. I hope he's celebrated in style with a kebab. I'll be lucky enough to, to attend semi-final Saturday with my father-in-law this coming Saturday in Brentwood for the English Open. It would be amazing to see Mark Williams play live, though I feel this may be unlikely as it seems so hard for players to maintain their high standards in back-to-back tournaments. He's hoping, though. I'm sure that whoever we see will be treated to a great day's entertainment. We can't wait. We attended the tournament last year in Brentwood in the early rounds and had a fantastic time. It would be great if he could remain here in years to come, thank you for all you do to promote the game. Keep up the good work. Well, that's very kind of you, Craig. Yeah, I mean, I think Williams was the more positive in the final. Selby was more prepared to wait for chances, try and craft chances with good safety. Williams is a great shot maker. He, he definitely tried to force it more. Um, and you could argue that was the successful strategy because he won the final. But that's, I think Selby, the problem he's got there really is that his sort of style of play... Yeah, it will beat most players, but Williams is a very crafty, canny player himself, and he was wise to that. And you know, he made those those two clearances at the end, which were which were terrific, really. Uh, Monica writes, "Hope you're well. Back in full swing for the season now. Favorite time of the year for me. Fantastic Shanghai Masters had all the glitz and glamour, and just shows how Ronnie O'Sullivan can turn it on when he wants to. I do understand how after 30 years at the same routine and tournaments, you just can't get up for everything in the same way. I think this should be accepted now. He's earned the right." I also really like the jazz music in between the frames during this event. It was relaxing. Well, this is it's a niche point, Monica, but some people like that, some people didn't. But it's good It's good to get, get to the thumbs up from you. She said, last night's British Open was excellent. I love that despite all the random draws, top tier still ended the week. So happy for Mark. Great final. Two fabulous finals in a few weeks, both with Class of 92 in the winner's enclosure. Need to dead the how long do the Class of 92 have left conversation. Not to go personal, but is there any news on Vicky Selby? I hope she's okay. Mark looks in a good place. Any news on Mark King? Why is there no talk about this? feel like the suspension has been going on too long. Well, let's just uh, deal with those. I mean, it was alluded to that Vicky had, had been unwell um, uh, you know, last year. Uh, uh, hopefully she's on the mend. I've not heard any anything about that. But um, Mark himself seems in a good place. And, uh, you know, obviously that's, that's the important thing. Uh, Mark King... 
Um, I have met, I've talked about this in the last few weeks. There's no news yet, but I mean, like you say, it's been going on a long time. Obviously, that that, that hearing needs to come soon because uh, he's been suspended a while now, and um, it was for a match at the Welsh Open, which was in February. So yeah, that 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 needs to be resolved clearly. I'm sure we'll hear something in due course. Monica continues observing that Robbo, still Robertson, of course, and Judd Trump, just not quite the same touch lately. Amazing players are both of them, but can't seem to get the W. On that, Monica, Neil Robertson, he did an interview with Al McManus before his match with Sanderson Lamb at the English Open on Monday, which he ultimately lost for two. Um, and he said something that caught my ear. He said that at the, towards the end of last season, he was playing brilliant stuff and he was playing better than he had done at the same time the year before when he was winning tournaments. And I have to say, I'm not sure what that's based on. It's not based on results because uh, he didn't win any tournaments towards the end of last season. So whether he's trying to, and this is not the worst thing to do, but whether he's trying to sort of G himself up, almost telling, tell himself things that are relentlessly positive and trying to sort of translate that into performance, I don't know. But the fact is it didn't work uh, against Sanderson Lamb and it's not working at the moment for him. He's in a bit of a trough. Now, he's an unbelievable player, Neil Robertson, and you do feel one good week could transform it. I mean, he got to the semis in Shanghai. It's not been that much of a disaster this season, but the thing is we're just so used to him winning tournaments. And I think the key thing now for Neil for his confidence. Can he get in that champion of champions? That's a tournament he's won before. He's played great snooker in. He belongs in that tournament. It would be really odd. It'd be weird for him not to be in it. But he's got to win something. And he's running out of tournaments. He's got the Wuhan Open. He's got the Northern Ireland Open. And he's got the International Championship, which, despite the fact it finishes the day before the Champion of Champions, will count. So he's got three tournaments. Can he win one of those? Um, we know that he can. I suppose the question is, will he win one of those? If he doesn't, he'll be sitting out the Champion of Champions and you, you have to feel that will be... And he'll try and put a positive spin on it, but that's a massive blow to miss out on that with all the other top players in it. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of may be a knock to his confidence going forward this season. So I think it's a big few weeks for him. Can he win one of those tournaments? And if he does, I think if he can win one of those three, get in the Champion of Champions, I, I expect he will then motor for the rest of the season. So the next few weeks, I think, big for him. Um, Judd, I think he's playing all right. Um, he got to the final in Germany. Um, you know, he, he put together some nice performances this season. I mean, Hamad Mir played brilliantly, actually, in that match against him at the British Open. It's one of those sort of performances that a low-ranked player actually delivering the goods on TV um, against a top player. We'll see how far he goes at the English Open. But again, I wouldn't be, be too concerned for him. But, you know, he, the problem is we're so used to these guys winning. And it only has to tail off a little bit and things start to, you know, people start to talk about, oh, they're in trouble. It's been, what, about 18 months since, I know, when the Masters last season, but his last ranking event was the Turkish Masters 2022. For him, with the sort of few years he's had, that seems a long time. Uh just to conclude the email, Hawkeye needs to be used in ball replacement. We can't keep uh, we can't keep being so behind with the times, with the scores hardly working, etc. Happened again at the British Open. Scores in arena not showing the accurate results. Thanks for your excellent pod. Well, that, that's uh, kind of you, and thank you to, for writing in. I have some news on the scoring. It's not good. Um, just for the history of this. So Will Snooker had the contract with Sport Radar to provide the live scoring, and that was the established system that's been there for a number of years. That ran out at the end of the season. They're now with IMG Arena. But the new system was always going to take time to, to sort of be built, to migrate, to be in place for, for snooker fans to access. So the plan was we're going to have a temporary system um, in the early months of the season. 
And it's been erratic, as you say there. It, it, there were problems at the British Open. I mean, overall, I have to say it's kind of worked okay. But okay isn't really good enough when it's forward-facing to the public. You know, just being, you know, you have to sort of cross your fingers a little bit and hope it works. There have been, there have been problems with it early on. Um, big problems, actually. They were smoothed over to a degree. And like I say, basically is kind of all right. But that we need to aspire to more than that. And I'm sure the new system will be really good. I've heard a lot of good reports about it. But when we're going to see it? Well, I was told initially, we were all told that it, by the British Open they were hopeful. Then it became the UK Championship. I'm now told by three different good sources that it won't be now available until January at the Masters. I don't normally sort of talk about rumours at tournaments, but th these are people who know what they're talking about. And the World Snooker Tour staff are pretty frustrated because obviously they get it in the neck as well. They want it all to work. I'm sure that's true. I mean, I spoke to Barry Hearn about this actually when I interviewed him um, for my book and, and he just, we were just talking and he said this needs to be sorted out. So right from the top to the bottom of the organisation, they all want it to work. But it seems it's not going to be available until January. And that's, you know, the, the season started in June. So that's well over halfway through the season. Um, it's actually most of the season we won't have had this proper scoring um, system. And it, it's a little bit like HS2. Now, British listeners will understand what I mean, this high-speed rail that uh, has turned into a bit of a shambles. Um, and put it this way, it better be good when it does launch because I think snooker fans have had to put up with a lot. It, it, just on a from a personal perspective, on a sort of professional level, trying to do research, look scores up, access centuries. I mean, there's no list of centuries on there. There was used to be. It's actually difficult. And trying to find matches, um, quite often I've gone on there, it just says no fixtures when, when you know full well that there are. So it's not great. It seems it's been pushed back again. Um, I, I suspect when it finally is available, everyone will say how good it is. For now, though, it's getting a bit frustrating, I think, for everybody that this is dragging on. Um, and questions, if it goes on much longer, put it this way, if it's not available by the Masters, I think serious questions are going to be asked about how this whole thing has been handled and how it's been allowed to drag on this long. Because to go for over half the season without a proper, accurate, live-scoring system isn't good enough. Um, so we'll see. But as I say, it looks like the Masters now will be when we'll see it. Lawrence Carpenter has written... Thanks, as always, for a great weekly listen. Having watched some of the Ryder Cup this weekend, I feel Snooker is missing out by not having a national team competition. Although the two-player World Cup of recent years wasn't perfect, it did give that element of team play, but it seems to have disappeared from the calendar without trace. Do, do you have any idea why it was stopped? Was there a lack of interest from host countries, broadcasters or sponsors? And is there any hint that it might come back? A three-player team event would be ideal, but it's been a long time since, since we've had that. I think 16 countries could field a team. With four groups of four, then quarters, semis and a final, it would fit neatly into a week. As far as I know, Lawrence, the, the World Cup, um, the, the most recent iteration that you mentioned, that was sort of in the hands of Chinese promoters. Obviously, it all stopped because of the pandemic. No news of it coming back yet. I didn't particularly like the format. Two players, I don't think, is enough. I thought the... I mean, it was all done on frames one. It was... The first few days always seemed a little bit sort of pointless because you weren't really following any narrative. It was quite hard to follow, actually. So um, I'd like to see it come back, but I'd like to see, as you say, three players in a team. I mean, just think of some of the teams. OK, Belgium, Luca Brussel, Julian Leclerc, Ben Mertens. You know, Hong Kong could have Marco Fu, Onyi, Andy Lee. You know, so some good international teams. Australia, obviously, they've got two professionals, Neil Robertson and Ryan Thomason. 
it would have to be topped up with a, a leading amateur. But yeah, I, I think it, it would be something different. You'd have to find the right format. The best World Cup undoubtedly was '96 in, in Thailand. That was a big international event. They had uh, they actually had three players in each team plus a reserve, um, and it was uh, it was a big deal. Scotland won. Uh, Stephen Hendry, John Higgins, and Alan McManus, the dream team, all sort of at the peak of their powers at that time. Um, so something like that would be fantastic. But obviously, as with every event, it comes down to money, it comes down to promoters, broadcasters, sponsors, etc., etc. But I wouldn't be surprised if it came back in some form uh, at some time. I think that the reason they had two-player teams was they wanted to get as many countries in as possible because then you can sell it to as many countries as possible through the broadcasting rights and the dig- digital rights, all of which makes sense. Um, but... Yeah, we'll see. I, I think there's a good chance. Whether we'd ever have a Ryder Cup-style event, we talked about this before, you know, Europe versus Asia or something, I don't know. Um, does snooker lend itself to that? I mean, it's a very individual sport. If you're... I mean, this is the thing, obviously, it happens to be the case with the Ryder Cup as well. If you're week in, week out competing against people, is it a bit odd to then be on a team with them? Um, but again, I think, you know, we've seen the Moscone Cup in pool. That works brilliantly, so... I'm sure they've thought about this. It's not like Barry <laughs> has never had these ideas, but he has to make them work. And maybe at the moment we're not quite there in that in that sort of position yet. Kerry Richards, whilst in a pretty hopeless position yesterday, Ding and Wee conceded a frame against Mark Williams by rolling one of the remaining balls up the table with his hand. In this instance, despite the frame being over and the process of re-racking the balls for the next frame about to begin, does the referee add four points onto Mark Williams' tally for that frame's final score because of the foul. Just thinking about it from a betting standpoint and any bets on total points in a frame or even a match, nobody pays much attention to the final frame score once it's over, but you might if you had a few quid riding on it and the margin between a winning bet and a losing bet was that close. I have to say, Kerry, I, I, didn't, I don't recall the frame that you were talking about. I don't think I was commentating, but um, I suspect on that occasion the referee wouldn't have added a foul because they would have just taken it as a concession. Um... So I suspect not in that occasion, but it is a bit of a grey area, um, I suppose, uh, how players concede. Because quite often, obviously, you'll just concede from your chair. There's an argument if you go to the table and, and, and touch a ball, then it is a foul. Um, and, and I understand people do bet on these things, but I, I, without going back and looking at the footage, my, my, my suspicion is no, no foul would have been given there. Uh, Martin Eccles, I'd like to talk about two players who should be really happy with great careers, but moan a lot. Now, who could these two players be? There's a lot of candidates, aren't there? <laughs> but in this case, Martin has said, the case being Mark Allen and Karen Wilson, who feel like they don't get the credit they deserve. Been on the posters, uh, being on the posters in the case of Allen, and both complaining about which table they play. The moaning is grating. What's your opinion, or am I the one moaning? <laughs> well... <clears throat> There's a number of things I want to say about this, Martin. It's an interesting question. The first thing to say is, whatever job anyone does, they will moan about it. You can guarantee whatever you think the best job in the world is, pop star or footballer or whatever, they'll moan because we all moan about our jobs because we do the jobs and there are frustrations that maybe other people don't see. And maybe sometimes we lose sight of how fortunate we are, how lucky we are to be doing any particular job that we do. So whatever job you have, you will complain. In the case of the specific points you make, the table allocations, I mean, that's that's a difficult one. Karen Wilson had his say. Um, it, for him, it was twofold. One, he felt uh, there, was a, there was a tournament where, it may even have been this one a couple of years ago, but there was a tournament, uh, I say this on the English Open, I think it was Milton Keynes, where Kyron was, 
higher rank than the player who was chosen for table one. It was the first session of the day, 10am, Ding Junhui was chosen. And the reason he was chosen was because they could sell it to Chinese television. Um, obviously, Ding, a big name there. With the time difference, it will be early evening. Karen, though, of course, has his own sponsors, and he wanted to get as much exposure as he could for them, which is perfectly reasonable. Uh, but a lot of it also was the fact that he felt, well, hang on, I'm I'm much higher ranked than Ding these days. I should get the nod. Um, that's a call that you know the promoters, the broadcasters have to make, and there's lots of considerations for that. And someone's going to be unhappy. And in that, on that occasion, it was Karen. I didn't see it as moaning personally. Um, I thought he was entitled to say it, but I thought actually they were in the right as well. Ultimately, they're trying to package this event around the world and putting Ding on did that. In the case of Mark Allen. This is a slightly more nuanced one, I think. Mark Allen, apparently, according to press reports, has sent an official complaint to World Snooker Tour uh, regarding some of the way he's not being promoted and being left off social media posts, being left out of promotional material. And I don't really know what an official complaint looks like because it's, there's not really a process for that. There's not like a complaints department where an ombudsman will decide... Um, but anyway, apparently he's, he's done this and it, it's been something he's mentioned on social media um, and clearly he's not happy. He feels that he had his best ever season, world number three, and he should be more foregrounded in the, in the overall promotion of the game. I can see both sides of this. i say right away, no one at World Snooker Tour in any way, certainly on the media side, wants to upset any of the players. It's not in their interest to, um, but they have a lot of, Sort of balls to juggle, and in terms of, the, I mean, just the English Open, I think was one of the, the sort of the poster or something. The, the, one of the tweets was showing there were three players on it: Ronnie O'Sullivan, Luca Purcell, Mark Selby. Um, they chose three players, and they chose the world number one and, and the most popular player in the game. They chose the world champion, and they chose the defending champion. Now, Mark Allen is number three, so he's looking at the ranking list. He's saying, "Well, hang on, three players. I'm number three. I should be on it." It doesn't quite work like that. You know, there's been years in Belfast where he's not been anywhere near the top three in the world and he's been on the poster ahead of someone who's higher ranked because you go into each event with a specific way or idea of how to promote it and it's not a snub, but, of course, he's not looking at it from their position. He's looking at it from his position. He's thinking, well, I deserve more credit for what I've done. But it's not. they're not deliberately throughout to get him. It's just, it's just the sort of realities of how these events are promoted. Having said that, I think that what we have here is, on the one hand, an institution, World Snooker Tour, and on the other hand, an individual. And the two don't always relate to each other um, on a particular human level. The institution is a company. They're a commercial company. They have to make commercial decisions. They don't always necessarily think about people's emotions. And this is where you can get um, issues. And I'll, gi- I'll give you a personal example, okay, involving me. In the summer, I, in my own time, I went and did, uh, went and did something for them, which involved uh, being recorded, and um, I was happy to do it. And then uh, three weeks later, I was actually planning to, to show someone uh, this video, which was on their YouTube channel, and I went on there, and it had been deleted. <laughs> it had gone. Uh, and when I queried why, I was t- well, basically the, the, the sort of argument was, well, we don't need it anymore. Um, but it was like it never happened, and I thought, well, this is sort of not not showing a lot of gratitude to someone who's taken their own time to do something for you uh, for free, um, and then just we don't need it anymore, so let's let's delete it. It seemed pretty cold to me. And now, from the outside, you might say, well, who cares? Get over it, which is fine, absolutely fine. But you can't help how you feel. That's the thing. And Mark Allen, 
in this case, feels a particular way. That's how he feels. Um, people on the outside might look at it and think, well, you, you, ta- you know, you're taking it too seriously. You can't help how you feel. What Will Snooker Tour have to do is, I think, just speak to him, reassure him, and obviously do take into account his, his new exalted position in their promotional material going forward. Uh, I don't think he's a moaner, but I do think that um, it, it can come across that way. Players as well have to remember that, you know, there have been times, and this is a more general point, there have been times where they haven't always sort of fulfilled all their media commitments as well. So you've got to be careful if you're going to go in hard, you know, complaining that you're not being promoted, if there have been times when you haven't yourself um, always sort of done interviews properly, whatever. I'm not talking about Mark Allen there, I'm talking about just a general point. In terms of sort of the moaning uh, culture in snooker, I think it is quite bad, actually, um, in terms of people just picking things to complain about. I mean, there was a story uh, with Neil Robertson, actually. I mean, it's ironic, really, but he was saying about the calendar. He's called it insane, the calendar, the fact that it goes from the British Open to the English Open to the Wuhan Open straight away, because he said if he went deep in the English Open, he wouldn't know when to fly to Wuhan, which flights to book. I mean, that problem's been solved because he lost on day one. (laughs) But... I mean, he's right, actually. It is difficult, but at the same time, the players have been saying they've been missing these tournaments in China. Um, so, you know, the problem with scheduling is, you know, you have to go with when the promoter in China, A, can secure the venue, and B, can get the television uh, to cover it. And you can't just choose your own week for that. You have to fit in with them. And then that's true of these other tournaments as well, ITV with the British Open, Eurosport with the English Open. So putting the calendar together is not easy. In fact, it's very difficult. And sometimes you do get this sort of, um, you know, difficulty in, in tournaments being in different parts of the world in close proximity. Uh, but as I say, Neil, Neil Robertson's got all the time in the world to get to Wuhan, um, as it turns out. Ronnie O'Sullivan, as well, was um, sort of mouthing off about tournaments in Britain are no good and they should all be in China, which is interesting because pre-pandemic, he hardly played in tournaments in China. Um, I mean, you look back, he played in very few of them. But uh, it seems now the promoters are looking after him um, and clearly he's getting, you know, getting appearance money, which good luck to him, he deserves it. But um, he's, he's clearly looking at, at the Chinese events now as the ones he's going to target. Um, now, whether that's moaning or whether that's just someone making a point about their sport, that's for other people to decide. What I would say is it would be nice just occasionally to hear the players say something positive about snooker because we actually want people to come to our sport. It'd be nice to hear them praising up things. And and I go back to the, what I said at the start of this, this sort of answer. We all moan about our jobs. Maybe sometimes we should all just look at how fortunate we are to be doing those jobs. And that includes being a top-level professional snooker player. If you're in the top 10 in the world, you haven't really got that many problems in, in terms of your sort of playing career I mean, that's not to say off table but you know you're doing pretty well maybe sort of try and keep that going not just by playing well but also speaking well about the sport anyway that's my answer to that martin thanks for the question brian murray from dublin just want to say thanks again for your podcasts i really enjoy listening to them just a quick question about nothing really important i was looking at some old clip you say that but this is a great email brian Thank you for your comments, by the way. He says, I was looking at some old clips on YouTube recently and came across the clip where Graham Dock was playing against Mark Selby back in 2009. Graham played a safety shot, and as the white was going into the green pocket, he put his fist in the pocket and stopped the white ball going in. 
Alan Chamberlain called a foul on Graham and then Mark picked the white up, thinking he was in hand as the ball was going into the pocket. Alan Chamberlain called a foul on Mark because he shouldn't have picked it up. It seemed like Alan was waiting for Mark to pick the white up and could have avoided the problem before it happened. I always liked when Alan was refereeing, but this time he was smiling or smirking as he explained the rule to Mark and Graham. I don't think that a referee should interfere and tell a player if they're going to play a wrong ball accidentally, but this was a different situation. Do you think there's ever a situation where the referee should intervene before a player takes a shot? Thanks again for your shows. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Should a referee intervene before a player plays a shot? I'm, I'm not sure about that. That specific incident was very strange. Alan was applying the rules. Um, now, the, the, the question is, could he have said to Mark, by the way, Mark, that's not an in-off? You could argue yes or no. Um, it's interesting. If you ever spend any time socially with referees as a group, sort of in a bar late at night, and I have done, these are the sort of things, these sort of incidents come up. What would what will we do if this happened? And normally they never happen, but on this occasion it did. So because Graham stopped the cue ball going in, it was a judge not to have left the bed of the table. So when Mark came to the table, he thought, yeah, I could put it in the D, but actually he had to play it from where it was, and he was fouled. Alan Chamberlain, I mean, he's not, no longer with us. He was a great referee. I got on well with Alan. I liked him, actually. Um, and he was applying the rules. Now, there's an argument to say referees kind of, as I say, been waiting for an opportunity to, to, to prove that they knew, you know, the, the rule in that case. But really, he was just applying the rules. Now, is is there really discretion um, to have a word with the player first? Well, some would argue yes, some would argue no. He was a bit old school, Alan, and he did it his way. And there was a lot of fuss about it at the time, but ultimately, he he just applied the rules as, as they're in the, in the rule book. I'll give you another scenario. Mark Williams is colour blind. Okay, it's, it's with the brown when it's in amongst the reds. Now he can ask the the um, referee where the brown is, and they can tell him. But imagine he's imagine he's potted. Uh, I don't know. He's potted um, a red, and then a colour, and then he's lining up what he thinks is the next red, but it's actually the brown. Should the referee tap him on the shoulder and say, "Mark, that's the brown"? No, uh, it's just bad luck. He could, like I say, he could ask. Mark himself could ask, but it's not up to the referee to stop him playing a foul shot. So I suppose on that basis, just that example, you sort of lean towards referees are just there to apply the rules. They're not there to sort of dig the players out of trouble <laughs> when they find it. Um, Dermot writes, last year the Hong Kong Masters were staged to universal acclaim. The venue record crowds matches were all top notch. Is there any reason, given the success, the event's not been staged this year? Other than China, World Snooker is a serious problem making events stick. India, Turkey, Australia, Dubai, et al. have all come and gone amid much triumphalism at the launches. Is the bottom line, as evidenced again by the failure thus far to get an event off the base in Belgium, that sport is just too niche in these countries for sustainable fixtures? Well, Dermot, the, the, um, the event in Hong Kong wasn't a World Snooker Tour event. It was sanctioned by them. I mean, the, you know, it looked to have gone about as well as it could. It was packed. Um, but... You're not just you're not going to make an event like that successful just off the gate. There's going to be other factors as well, including I suspect support in Hong Kong itself, um, and obviously you know sponsorship and broadcasters and so on. Um, so a lot was said about that tournament, and it did look a success. But the fact he's not on this season maybe tells its own story, and, and maybe just reiterates he's not quite as simple as people think. Just to get events on, people said about Belgium, but it's not just a case of you know we put the tables in the lorry and head off there there has to be a lot of groundwork done and the money has to be secured to make sure the events are sustainable so um 
you know, you mentioned other places there, and you're quite right, there have been tournaments there. India, there's talk about going back to, um, but we'll see. You know, there's talk about a lot of things in this sport. They've actually got to happen, haven't they? Now, before we get on to our main feature of the of the week, the fantasy quarterfinalists, we have our second and final jokes amnesty. We, I, asked, I introduced the jokes feature uh, a few weeks ago. Readers sent their own jokes in. Um, the jokes feature, I think, will stay, but they'll be my jokes from now on. <laughs> um, but anyway, Martin Devlin, he says, The head referee of our local snooker league recently retired after 30 years of loyal service. To mark this occasion and say thanks, we arranged a retirement due for him. The night contained music, food and drink, and many emotional tributes from players and referees past and present. Everyone agreed it was a touching ball. <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. I'd say that's that's hitting the ground running. Uh, and if you don't agree, let's hear some more. Mark Walsh has sent three. And this one is a very contemporary one. Why couldn't Senator Joseph McCarthy play snooker? Because his reds were under the bed. Now, that in the 1950s, that joke would have killed. Uh, anyway, Mark, Mark continues. Why is snooker chalk so reliable? Because it's always on cue. And finally for Mark, why couldn't the retired scuba diving instructor clear up the colours? Because he missed the blue. Yeah, they got progressively worse, didn't they? I mean, no offence, Mark, but anyway. Now, Mark and John, who very, I met them in the car park in Cheltenham, were very insistent that their jokes that they'd already sent in. I missed them. It wasn't deliberate. Um, but they were very insistent they were included. So here we go. Two of them, very similar. Which player can be found on top of a pond? David Lilly. Which player can be found at the bottom of a pond? Matt Silt. <laughs> Matt Silt. Good grief. Uh, and that's it on the uh, on the jokes amnesty. And we, as I say, we, we may return to my jokes later on. But the main feature this week, so it's the eighth anniversary of the podcast. Uh, people will be saying it feels like this episode's been gone on eight years, but uh, we're approaching the final bend. But I thought I asked a few weeks ago people to send in their sort of fantasy quarterfinals. If you could pick any eight players from snooker history, who would they be? Why would you pick them? And what sort of matches could we expect? So Jay Brannon has written in here and he's listed his four matches. Ronnie O'Sullivan versus Tony Drago. Arguably the two fastest players ever and would love to see them operate at the same speed as their 1996 World Championship contest where they played 17 frames in less than three hours. Second, Paul Hunter against Judd Trump. I wanted this one in because Paul was cruelly denied the opportunity to face the top stars that have emerged since his death in 2006. It's very possible that if he was still alive today, this could have been a matchup we'd still be seeing as an elite contest. I picked Trump as the opponent as he's also flamboyant and became a fan favourite early in his career, just like the hugely missed Paul. Uh, third, Alex Higgins v John Higgins. No love lost between these namesakes and all-time greats, given John Higgins in his recent interview on Talking Snooker mentioned difficult meetings with the volatile two-time world champion early in his career. Yeah, I think... The story John told was that Alex came up to him and said, there's only room for one Higgins in this sport. <laughs> Which is uh, kind of, you can just picture him doing that, actually. Um, it turned out there was room for two, and one of them actually was better than the first one. Um, and finally from Jay, Alison Fisher versus Rhian Evans. The understandable decision of Fisher to earn a better living playing pool meant that Evans never got the opportunity during her excessive dominance of the women's tour to face a player I've heard Phil Yates and others say was the best female player they watched? Um, yeah, I mean that's a, that's a sort of whole new debate, isn't it? The the, the goat in in women's snooker. Alison was uh, the, the trailblazer. Went off to U.S. pool. Rian Evans obviously had a very successful sort of well twenty years pretty much, and, and just recently won a, a record twelfth 
or extend, record extending 12th UK Championship title. Pat Fitzgerald, he said, I love thinking about these types of scenarios. I'm not going to give the answers some people might feel they have to give, like Joe Davis, for example. I'm following snooker since around 86, 87, so I'm going to base it off that. I'd look at the main protagonists from those eras and narrow it down from there. So players for consideration. So he, he's got a short list and then he's going to pick the matches. So he's got Steve Davis, Jimmy White, Alex Higgins, Stephen Hendry, John Parrott, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Mark Selby, Cliff Thorburn. And his matches that he's chosen, Stephen Hendry against Mark Selby, Jimmy White against John Higgins, Steve Davis against Mark Williams, and Ronnie O'Sullivan against Alex Higgins. Christine uh, has not come up with quarterfinals, but she's listed players from different eras. Now, uh, without wishing to uh, pull you up on this, Christine, there's only actually seven here rather than eight, but that's okay. You, can, you make your own rules. Um, so she's gone for 2004 Ronnie with the long hair and Alice Band. Uh, 2023 Mark Selby, distinguished, driven, hopefully personally happier than ever. The 2021 Mark Williams, not at his peak, but relaxed, and lovely family around him, all happy and healthy. 2002 Peter Ebden, smooth-headed, blue waistcoat. We were oblivious. We were oblivious of his personal opinions about things back then. Uh, 2001 Joe Swell, come on Northern Ireland, keep battling, you'll win the world someday soon. 2007 Ding Jun Wee, adorable, nervous, brilliant. And 1972, Alex Higgins. How good was he? Talent, energy, before you experienced him in the later years and started saying his name in that tone of voice full of disdain. Phil Spivey, thank you, Christine. Phil Spivey, last time you asked for Fantasy Quarterfinal Alliance, so here in mind, this is all based on players being at their peak. I also imagine this as a world championship with the best of 25 frame matches. Number one, Stephen Hendry versus Mark Selby. I've often thought that if Skynet had been interested in snooker and decided to send a Terminator back to stop Henry's domination of the 90s, the ideal candidate from today's players would be Selby. Obviously, any of the current elite would pose a challenge, but most play a similar style to Hendry, so he'd know what to expect. Whereas Selby's blend of tactical play, ability to grind out results where needed, along with his brilliant break building, will be a different kind of test, so they could have frustrated Hendry. I know their careers overlap by about 13 years, not counting Hendry's comeback, but their respective peak years did not clash. Hasta la gesta, baby. Now, what about that? That could be the that could be the joke session. Hasta la gesta, baby. Uh, number two, John Higgins versus sorry, Alex Higgins versus Luca Brassell. Not sure much explanation is needed, but just imagine them trying to outdo each other in their shot selection. Number three, Ray Reardon versus Ronnie O'Sullivan. Reardon was dominant in a very different era, and it's often argued that the likes of him could not live with the current players. However, I, although I'm too young to remember his peak years, indeed, if I could interject a joke there, uh, Phil, you could say his widow's peak years. Mm. <laughs> There's a niche reference. Uh, he says, I've seen plenty of clips, and he was some player. Given the time to adapt, I think he'd do OK. Anyway, to see him against Ronnie would be fascinating. On paper, a clash of styles, but perhaps their games are more similar than we realise, especially since 2004, when Reardon mentored O'Sullivan and helped him enjoy the safety side of the game, which Ronnie has embraced and excelled in. Number four, Eddie Charlton versus Tepchar and New. Eddie Charlton versus Tepchar and New. For no other reason than to see Charlton's head explode at his opponent's speed of play. Anyway, those are my suggestions. Look forward to hearing those of other listeners. Callum Law, as for my dream tournament quarterfinal lineup. I go for the following clashes of styles and eras. Joe Davis versus Stephen Hendry. Ray Reardon versus Ronnie O'Sullivan. Steve Davis versus Mark Selby. John Higgins versus Alex Higgins. Would be intrigued in modern conditions with all eight players at their peak. 
to see how those matches turned out. Okay, a lot of the same names, and that's not a surprise, and that's fine, because these are the legends of the sport. Alex Lee, my imagination was duly captured by your fantasy quarterfinalist idea, so much so that I've had to do a preliminary round in order to get to the last eight. I hope this is acceptable. Well, we're doing nothing else, Alex, you might as well. Prelim 1, Jimmy White versus Ronnie O'Sullivan. The Rocket takes a fast and furious contest 5-4 on a black ball game, using his left hand to pop the final ball as the crowd, full of chirpy, chirpy cockney characters, goes wild and almost chokes on his jelly deals. No stereotyping there at all. <laughs> Prelim 2, Cliff Thorburn versus Fergal O'Brien. Canadian hustler grinder Thorburn comes out on top with a 1-4-7 in the seventh frame, the first one in a fantasy quarter-final preliminary match, after being edged out in a four-hour safety battle the frame before, also a record. Final score, 5-2 to Cliff. Prelim 3, Neil Robertson versus Judd Trump. In the battle of the left-handers, a pulsating nine frames seems, sees a long-potting frenzy. Robertson comes out on top 5-4 after capitalising on a sl- slightly slack safety by the Juddenaut. A total of six entries, three each, are scored in the match, thus settling another, thus setting another fantasy prelim record. Prelim 4, Ray Reardon versus Mark Williams. Two Welsh wizards match up and the crowd love every second of the banter and softly played plain ball shot riddle match. Reardon scrapes home 5-4, having somehow gained strength, confidence and momentum immediately after the clock strike midnight. Prelim 5. Steve Davis versus Joe Davis. While not in any way related, the two multiple world champions serve up a feast of cue ball control, but it's Steve Davis's slightly better break building ability and Leviathan will to win that sees him home 5-3. Prelim 6, Alex Higgins versus John Higgins. Curiously, the sixth matchup drawn randomly by Deep Blue also features two players owning the same surname, but without any blood ties. Talking of blood, it's Alex who draws first claret by headbutting the ref, and as a result he gets a frame deducted. Although the Irishman rallies slightly from this setback, it's John Higgins' all-round game that takes him through 5-2. Prelim 6... It'll be nine years of the podcast by the time this is over. Anyway, Prelim 6, Stephen Hendry versus Paul Hunter. A joy to watch for any snooker purist. Hendry and Hunter pop their way through a magnificent preliminary round. And although Hendry records a 5-3 win by scoring consecutive tons in the last two frames, snooker is the winner on this occasion as bar the break-offs barely a safety shot is played in a celebration of the sport. Prelim 7, Mark Selby versus Ding Junhui. It would be tough to find two more contrasting stars in the sport but Selby and Ding nevertheless put on a snooker masterclass with Selby's grit, determination and ability to find the bolt rail with his safeties, edging out Ding's brand of touch snooker and clever use of cannons. Final score, Selby 5, Ding 4. Pretty mate, Sean Murphy versus Luca Brassell. With the two players having won, world championship, having won one world championship each, both are keen to prove their worth among the world's fantasy elite. As a result, the match throws up a beautiful array of trick shots, big breaks and majestic potting. Both players record two tons each, but it's Murphy who just about shades it 5-4 as Brassell struggles to find space in his diary for the fantasy last eight, the tattooist and the six parties he's being invited to on the same night. So the fantasy top eight is therefore O'Sullivan, Thorburn, Robertson, Reardon, John Higgins, Hendry, Selby and Murphy. Thank you, Alex. A lot of work went into that, uh, mainly from me reading it out. Uh, now, Brian Dobson. Following on from your discussion on a fantasy quarterfinal lineup, I plumped for this selection following the top rivalries of their respective eras. Quarterfinal one, best of nine. John Spencer versus Ray Reardon, a tightly fought contest all the way with some, some sublime tactical play throughout, but Reardon finishes in style with a superbly crafted 110 to end Spencer's mini comeback. Reardon wins 5 3. Quarterfinal two, Steve Davis versus Alex Higgins. Alex is docked the first frame, returning at late, but proceeds to make amends by leading 3 1 at the mid session interval. 
Fortunately for Alex, he starts celebrating prematurely with too many vodka oranges. He then blames the referee before refusing to do a post-match interview. Steve beats Alex 5-3. Quarter-final three, Stephen Hendry versus Jimmy White. Jimmy says he's playing the best he's ever done in practice and both players appear in buoyant mood. But Hendry steals three frames in succession when the whirlwind breaks down on the 50-plus break when in a frame-winning opportunity. Stephen wins 5-2. I've, I've sent some scars here, Brian, from your uh, snooker-watching life. But anyway, uh, finally, quarter-final four, Ronnie O'Sullivan versus John Higgins. A hard slog of no quarter given between the class of 92 leaves the match with parity at the mid-session interval at 2-2. However, on the resumption, the Rocket powers away with three centuries on the spin, finishing with a 1-4-2, and then claims he was total rubbish throughout. Ronnie wins 5-2. And we have... Uh, Finally on this, Lee Wall in Liverpool. I've picked my dream set of four matches. I'm assuming all players are in their peak and I've picked matchups between players from different eras. Here goes. Now, there's a couple of new names in this one. Cliff Wilson versus Mark Williams. From the limited footage I've seen of Cliff, he seems to float round the table like his fellow countrymen and I think this would be a great clash between two of the greatest shot makers the game has seen. Then we have Ray Reardon versus Ronnie O'Sullivan, the best of the 70s versus arguably the best of the lot. The relationship of mutual respect between these two could make it a cracker. Ray might be able to use mind games to give him the edge over the rocket. Pat Houlihan against Stephen Hendry. It would be a real treat to see these two prolific potters go head-to-head and toe-to-toe in their pomp. I did not mean to write in fluent tabloidese, but I might as well stick with it now. And then we've got Terry Griffiths against Mark Selby. Pure, unadulterated, hardcore snooker. The venue... Crawley Leisure Centre. Commentators, it says here, Dave Hendon and Murray Walker. That would be an interesting partnership, wouldn't it? Uh, Murray Walker, of course, great uh, Formula One commentator of years gone by. Thank you to everyone who contributed. All a bit of fun. All pointless as well, but the whole podcast is pointless, and we've still been going for eight years. So that's it uh, for this week. Uh, I have no inspiring words to end. I set to say genuine thank you to the community of snooker fans that continue to listen to the podcast and indeed correspond and write in with ideas and thoughts questions and jokes and all the rest of it because uh, otherwise it wouldn't exist would it let's be honest um so thank you and uh, it's an interesting point in the season i mean we're very busy right now there's torments coming thick and fast um and be interested to see can anyone sort of start to, to dominate i mean can mark williams go back to back can somebody actually sort of put themselves forward as right i'm the guy to beat right now i mean obviously ronnie o'sullivan has already won the only tournament he's played in but he's got this issue with his elbow. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting. Like, Judd Trump was doing that for a while and then sort of fell away a little bit. Mark Selby, I think, you know, he's going to be coming good this season. We'll see a lot of him. We'll see. But as ever, I mean, I am as fascinated as Snooker now as, as when I first watched it. And that's a very privileged position to be in. And I'm very grateful uh, to be in it and to have the opportunity to uh, to work in the sport. So, um, without sort of, you know, making this too self-regarding, I just want to say thank you to all the people I work with and all the people who listen to this podcast and continue to support it. We are members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. But for now, that's it. Here's to the next eight years. <laughs> or at least the next year, shall we? Let's, put, let's, let's start small. Um, and uh, as we always say, we didn't say it at the start because uh, it wasn't a thing then, but it's become a catchphrase. A completely pointless one on a completely pointless podcast. As we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.